0: Welcome to this episode of Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast giving you advice, tips, and tools from getting the most out of your research. I'm Thomas Warwick, and today I'll be talking to you about some of the science behind cryoelectron microscopy. Propelled into the scientific mainstream, cryoelectron microscopy, or CryoEM for short, and three scientists critical to its development won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry in 2017. But what is cryoelectron microscopy? Why is the cryogenic aspect important? And how did it seemingly go from nothing to the big time? Simple answers is an ultra-high-resolution imaging technique performed at cold temperatures that can provide atomic structures of complex biological samples, such as viruses. Let's go a bit deeper than this, however. Here's a short introduction to cryoEM. There are several sub-techniques within cryoEM. These are scanning electron cryomicroscopy, cryo-SEM, cryocorrelative light and electron microscopy, cryoclem, cryo-electron tomography, cryo-ET, and transmission electron cryomicroscopy, cryo-TEM. Techniques one to three are comparatively niche, and when people discuss cryo-EM, they invariably mean the fourth one, transmission electron cryomicroscopy. So that's what this episode focuses on. cryo is transmission electron microscopy, or TEM, performed on samples maintained at cryogenic temperatures. The cryogenic temperatures enable the near atomic resolution structure determination of biomolecules in solution. This includes viruses, organelles, tissues and proteins. A cryogenic temperature is simply anything below minus 150 degrees centigrade. In cryo-EM liquid ethane is used to cool samples to minus 188 degrees centigrade. Samples must be kept thin, very thin. With cryoEM, the goal is to image potentially hundreds of thousands of single particles and combine them into orientational classes. Hold this thought. So, for plenty of excellent reasons, the ideal sample thickness is the maximum sample particle dimension. A typical particle might have dimensions of 10 to 100 nanometers, which correlates to 100 to 1,000 angstrom. And speaking of samples, unlike X-ray crystallography, cryoEM doesn't require crystalline samples. This enables high-resolution structural data to be collected for specimens that are impossible to crystallise, including filaments, tissues and some organelles. Removing the requirement for crystallisation also makes it possible to study samples that are extremely difficult to crystallise. Examples include membrane proteins, large protein complexes, ribosomes and viruses. Consequently, cryoEM has expanded the range of material for which it's possible to collect structural data and emerged as a parallel technique to x-ray crystallography. This ultimately means more data for everybody. Let's clear up a few obvious questions right away. Why is liquid ethane used? Well, the cryo aspect of cryoEM confers three main benefits. One, radiation damage of the sample caused by electrons is reduced. Two, samples are protected from the harsh vacuum in the microscope. And three, water molecules are locked in place around native samples. Point three is a critical one here. You see, although cryo-EM is technically a solution state technique, it's performed on frozen samples. How so? Now, the word frozen is a misnomer, and we shouldn't use it when describing cryo-EM samples. The correct word is vitrified. Cryo-EM samples are vitrified. That's to say they're cooled well below the freezing temperature of water too quickly for the water molecules to arrange into ice crystals. Because ice crystals are less dense than water and because they're sharp, they would rupture and denature biological samples upon formation. So although cryo-EM samples are cooled to the extent of forming a solid, the solid is a literal snapshot of the individual molecules as they were orientated in solution. As an aside, this is why we add glycerol to competent cells. Glycerol disrupts the H-bond network of water molecules to prevent the formation of lethal ice crystals. What's wrong then with liquid nitrogen? Well, it's not that it isn't cold enough. At minus 196 degrees centigrade, it's a bit cooler than liquid ethane. In fact, liquid nitrogen is used to keep the liquid ethane cold. One problem lies with its heat capacity. Heat capacity is simply the amount of heat energy a material can absorb to produce a given change in temperature. The heat capacity of liquid nitrogen is too low to successfully vitrify cryo samples. Upon plunging into liquid nitrogen, some of the latter boils as it absorbs heat from the much warmer sample. This slows the cooling process down such that ice crystals can form, destroying the sample. Liquid ethane has a higher heat capacity than liquid nitrogen. It doesn't boil when the sample is plunged into it, so the cooling process is quicker, allowing for pure vitrification. Another problem lies with the tendency for liquid nitrogen to create a layer of cold gas above the liquid nitrogen surface. This can cause sample pre-cooling as it's dipped towards the liquid nitrogen, which also leads to ice formation. And since we're already on a bit of a tangent, let's address a corollary. Listeners who have lyophilized plasmid DNA may be thinking, hang on, doesn't water sublime in a vacuum? It certainly does. But most freeze dryers operate about minus 60 degrees centigrade. If you go much colder, the physical impetus for sublimation becomes negligible. This is why ice moons can exist for eons in the vacuum of space. And remember, sublimation is when a substance transforms from a solid to a gas without ever becoming a liquid. Moving on, why are thin samples so important? Let's not get into single particle image reconstruction here, because the theory and instrumentation are so advanced that they border on magic. Samples that are too thick cause A, molecules to lie at different focal heights in the microscope, and B, scattering of incident electrons by the vitrified water, both of which lower the signal-to-noise ratio and tarnish the magic. Regarding point A, it's important to remember that cryoEM structures comprise data collected from at least tens of thousands of individual yet identical particles. And regarding point B, it's important to remember that sample molecules scatter incident electrons, which are refocused by a series of lenses to produce an electron micrograph. Electrons scattered by the vitrified water encode no beneficial information about the sample. So all this said, what are the size and resolution limits of cryoelectron microscopy? Simply put, there are no hard limits. That's not quite the complete picture, however. Let's take a moment to consider the sample size and resolution limits in X-ray crystallography. The upper size limit is anything that will crystallize. There's no lower limit since small molecules crystallize better than big ones, and the resolution limit is the radiation wavelength, lambda divided by two. There are a few exceptions, such as detergents and polymers, which are recalcitrant to crystallization. However, it's fair to say these are definite rules. Not so for cryo-EM. In summary, There's no theoretical upper size limit. At the time of recording, the smallest structure solved is 52 kilodaltons and the highest resolution structure solved is 1.22 angstrom. However, these values are likely to change as this episode ages and the limits aren't as clear cut as in X-ray crystallography. Allow me to elaborate. The upper size limit of cryo-EM isn't really discussed in the scientific literature. It's generally assumed the sample size limit is anything you can purify, be bothered to solve or can afford the computing power for. Thus, it's been used to solve the structure of dengue virus, which weighs about 11 megadaltons, plenty big enough. The lower size limit, however, is a hot topic. At the time of recording, the smallest structure solved using cryoEM is streptavidin, which weighs 52 kilodaltons. The average molecular mass of a bacterial protein is 40 to 50 kilodaltons, depending on species and genus. So, it's reasonably clear while there's a massive effort to reduce this lower limit. Incidentally, the predicted theoretical lower limit of cryo-EM is 38 kilodaltons. The reasons are much too complicated to get into here, but have to do with the difficulty in obtaining high-quality information from non-crystalline material. Check out the references in the corresponding online article if you fancy a deep dive. Similarly, the resolution limit is also influenced by several complicating factors. These include beam-induced movement of the sample during imaging, sample damage during vitrification, sample damage during imaging, and suboptimal exposure times as yet the highest resolution structure solved using cryoem is apoferritin at 1.22 angstrom as mentioned now let's compare and contrast high resolution biomolecular imaging techniques we've already touched on a few differences between cryoem and x-ray crystallography one difference we've not discussed is how the samples in these techniques are illuminated which is fundamental in a cryoem experiment electrons are scattered when they hit the sample Electrons are negatively charged. This charge can be exploited to focus the scattered electrons electromagnetically in real time to produce an image, the micrograph. Our eyes do a similar thing with photons of visible light. While these quanta don't have charge, their wavelength is long enough, 400 to 700 nanometers, to interact with and be focused by optical lenses. The wavelength of a 200 kiloelectron volt electron, such as those produced in a TEM microscope, is 2.7 picometers. This is about 150,000 times shorter than the wavelength of visible light, and is too small to be focused using an optical lens, hence the need for electromagnetic lenses. X-rays, well, they're the worst of both worlds. Their wavelength is about one angstrom in an X-ray diffraction experiment, and is too small to interact with an optical lens. They would just pass straight through it. Nor are x-rays charged, so they cannot be focused using electromagnetic lenses either. They're a terrible way to illuminate a sample, really. Consequently, x-rays scattered by crystalline samples in an x-ray diffraction experiment must be focused mathematically and by the experimenter at a later point in time. Unfortunately, this causes crucial data to be lost. In fact, it's much worse than that. All data that contributes most to the final electron density map is lost. This is called the phase problem. It's not insurmountable, but we never get the data back. Instead, it must be estimated by a complex process of inspired trial and error and other clever methods. This leads to its own problems, not least among which is an incredible bias towards the model built into the electron density map, appearing to be statistically and visually correct, regardless of whether it is. If that sounds scary, that's because it is. It's led to structures published that were later discovered to be completely incorrect. Because the refocusing of scattered electrons is done in real time using electromagnetic lenses, CryoEM doesn't suffer from this. There's no phase problem. It does suffer from its own biases, and we'll get to those, but they're less pernicious. And what about NMR? We've not spoken about that yet. Well, it doesn't rely on radiation to illuminate samples, so it too is free from the phase problem. Instead, it measures how atomic nuclei align themselves in a pulsed magnetic field. This is great because it requires a genuine solution state sample, not crystals or vitrified ones. So short of in-cell imaging, NMR samples are the most representative of the native state. However, NMR spectra get noisy very quickly. Data from those thousands of nuclei aren't spatially resolved, like in a micrograph or diffraction pattern. Consequently, protein NMR spectra are complicated and hard to deconvolute. This means that, except for highly specialist applications, the upper sample size limit for protein NMR is approximately 35 kilodaltons. Obviously rules out most protein-protein complexes and any large complex, really. So what does the future look like for cryo-electron microscopy? Despite prohibitively limited access to suitable microscopes, such as the powerful Titan Krios, cryo-EM is transforming the fields of molecular and structural biology. That's clear from everything we've discussed in this introduction and from a quick browse of the Electron Microscopy bank. But there are two things we need to address. The first is bias. Earlier on, I asked you to hold a thought regarding classifying particles. I also mentioned that cryo-EM structures suffer from bias. These are cardinal points because they represent a significant problem with cryo-EM that needs to be addressed going forwards. Particles on electron micrographs lie in all manner of orientations. These orientations must be divided into classes and then each particle that is to be included in the analysis is assigned to a class. Simple, this can lead to bias, particularly so when the assignment is manual, but it also occurs when the process is automated because a human being wrote the program, although deep learning algorithms may ameliorate this. A concerning consequence of this is that researchers may end up with an electron density map that contains features that aren't in their sample. From there, it's a slippery slope to drawing incorrect conclusions. One solution is to split at random all of the particles analysed into two sets. Then, build two electron density maps and see how well they compare. Great. But this only provides a measure of internal consistency. Estimating absolute correctness is extremely difficult. Remember the phase problem in X-ray crystallography? I probably undersold it, but it's so problematic and surreptitiously pushes crystallographers towards building incorrect models that they've come up with a solution. It's called the free R factor. Basically, a chunk of diffraction data usually 5 to 10%, is emitted entirely from the process of constructing an electron density map. It's not used at all. Then, as you build the model into the electron density, periodically perform a computational diffraction experiment on it. If the model built is genuinely correct, it should agree with the diffraction data not used to build it. CryoEM urgently needs an equivalent metric. The problem is, it's just not that easy to come up with one. At the moment, all of the nominated particles are needed to construct electron density maps. You can't afford to just bin 10% of them. And if you could back compute a micrograph from your atomic model, how do you account for all the different particle orientations? And how much confidence would you have given that micrographs are so noisy anyway? Okay, you can back compute just an electron density map from your suggested model, then pick particles on your micrograph that resemble it to derive subsequent electron density maps from. But, well-intentioned as that may be, it just leads to more bias. The second issue is resolution. Earlier, I quoted the highest resolution structure solved using cryoEM to date, apotheratin, to one hundredth of an angstrom. That's one picometer. I did this deliberately to illustrate this point. Is any solved structure accurate to one picometer? The answer is no. This is because an experimental structure of a single molecule doesn't even have a uniform resolution across itself, particularly in cryoEM. Where anisotropic or non uniform resolution is part and parcel of the structures used solving it. The problem is that we rely on resolution too much as the ultimate metric to judge structure quality, and I've been adding to the problem. Throughout this introduction, I've highlighted resolution several times when comparing CryoEM to its counterparts. I haven't spoken about any other metric. Just to be clear, over reliance on the purported resolution isn't a problem caused by the emergence of CryoEM, it goes deeper than that. Although, it's fair to say cryo-EM is a revolutionary technique at the centre stage of structural biology. As such, it's an opportunity to change old habits. The mere uptake of cryo-EM is already a feature of behaviour change amongst scientists who, let's face it, can be very set in their ways. Another one must be possible. And there we have it, a short introduction of cryo-electron microscopy. For a handy table comparing the major structural biology methods, why not visit the corresponding online article? Also, check out the episode description for links to related articles and resources. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get more help and advice from mentors at your benchside. Are you always on the go, but still seeking valuable insights to advance your research? Well, look no further than listen in. The podcast from Bite Size Bio that offers the benefits of webinars in a portable format with webinars featuring leading researchers and commercial specialists discussing techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 and microscopy. With ListenIn, you can tap into their expertise and drive your research project forward efficiently and productively, no matter where you are. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Listen In in your podcast app to subscribe.